This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, September 21st, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. Why does Pakistan continue to sponsor militant groups in the face of considerable U.S. pressure to stop? It's a question that's plagued U.S.-Pakistan relations for decades. What should the current administration do to reduce tensions in pursuit of shared goals? Sahar Khan is author of the new Cato paper, Double Game, Why Pakistan Supports Militants and Resists U.S. Pressure to Stop. We spoke yesterday. Double game refers to the U.S.-Pakistan relationship, and um, it has been a term that's been used for several years now for a couple of reasons. Uh, the first is that the U.S. and Pakistan have always been allies, but they haven't always been the best ones. And so the United States feels that Pakistan is playing a double game with it, because on the one hand, Pakistan will say that they are an ally in the global war on terror and that they will facilitate U.S. interests and U.S. operations on the ground in South Asia, specifically in Afghanistan. Yet, at the same time, there has been a lot of empirical evidence that indicates that Pakistan has been sponsoring militant groups um, throughout the region. And so that's essentially the double game. It also points to a phrase that's been used historically called the great game, which has been referred to politics in Afghanistan, not just domestic politics, but also foreign interests that have colluded with domestic politics in Afghanistan. So the Great Game essentially refers to Russian interest or the Soviet Union's interest um, when uh, it invaded Afghanistan. It refers to U.S. interests, to some extent even Chinese and, and Indian interests. So the term is, is, is almost, you know, to connected to the great game, but then it also is specifically referred to, um, it's used to refer to the U.S.-Pakistan relationship. So when when Americans think about uh, the U.S. relationship with Pakistan, if they do, um, it, it's probably a mistake, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, to think of Pakistan as a government that is in any way monolithic. That is, that is, Pakistan could support militants and yet make these pledges to the United States to be helpful uh, in U.S. efforts in the region, and no one is no one is uh, being du- no individual is being duplicitous. Is that fair? Yes, that's absolutely fair. I mean, Pakistan is a very complex country, and I think when you know the United States, or at least when Americans think about Pakistan, they tend to think about it as the place where either Osama bin Laden was found, where he was in two thousand nine, or they think of the place where there are a lot. There's a lot of extremism, and um, you know there are a lot of you know Islamist militants roaming around freely. Um, to be fair, those statements of mine are not inaccurate, but it is also not a complete picture of a country. And Pakistan is very much a developing country. It is also a democratizing country. In July of this year, it experienced its third general election, which is the first time that elections have been um, held in continuum. The first was in 2008, the second was in 2013, and now 2018. And there's been a relatively peaceful transition to power, which is new for Pakistan. Pakistan is 71 years old, and it has spent more than half of its life under military rule. And when it comes to the U.S.-Pakistan relationship, American um, diplomats and generally the foreign policy establishment has actually preferred working with the Pakistani military than the civilian leadership for a variety of reasons. So some of American perception about Pakistan, it's not 
I don't want to say that it's inaccurate, but I do think that it is incomplete and it inflates to some extent the kind of government that exists in Pakistan. I can't imagine the U.S. government is popular in Pakistan. <laughs> well, you know, um, certainly the Trump administration is not, that's for sure. Um, I think uh, the Obama administration very much was, mainly because of Barack Obama's personality and his speeches, etc., I mean, generally, yes, there is a lot of anti-Americanism in Pakistan, but um, the, America also has one of the largest Pakistani diasporas, right? So a lot of Pakistanis want to come to America. There is always a line outside of the embassy and consulates. People want visas to either visit, to study, or to work. Um, and so, yes, on an official level, you could say that there is anti-Americanism. I think Pakistanis are frustrated with some of the rhetoric that American officials use. Um, they are not a big fan of drone strikes, for example. They're not a big fan of, you know, Secretary of State Pompeo saying that, you know, we're going to cut aid um, and that, you know, they they just essentially don't like being seen as a country that is so dependent on the United States. But that said, a lot of Pakistanis want to come to America and they know a lot about America. And um, when they do come here, they are very good immigrants. And some of them who do become citizens end up being very law-abiding citizens as well. So it's kind of like a mix. The official sort of rhetoric does not um, match um, the ground reality. As you note in your uh, paper, since 2002, terrorist groups have killed more than 22,000 Pakistani civilians. So it, does that give uh, any credence to the U.S. efforts in that region from the, the populace of Pakistan that, that the United States is active in that region for the express purpose of uh, knocking out terrorists? Um, I think that's a great question. So yes, Pakistan has lost uh, thousands of civilians in, in this global war on terror. Some of it is because of the global war on terror, but some of it is also because of some domestic politics of its own. So um, I think there's this idea that these civilians would not have died had the global war on terror not begun, had the U.S. not invaded Afghanistan. I'm not entirely sure that that's true. Um, Pakistan is a country that has experienced a, a successful secessionist movement. Um, for example, um, when Pakistan was created in 1947, there were two wings, West Pakistan and East Pakistan. And um, East Pakistan eventually in 1971 became Bangladesh. And so that is one of one, one success story of a secessionist movement um, of the Bengalis sort of seceding uh, and becoming Bangladesh. So Pakistan has a very troubled relationship domestically with ethnic groups and with religious groups. And so even though uh, the general public likes to blame the United States involvement in the region, especially in Afghanistan, for some of the troubles that Pakistan has experienced, but I don't think that that's um, a fair assumption. So given the number of uh, terrorists that have killed you know, more than 20,000 Pakistani civilians, what has been their substantial response to trying to counter that terrorism. So Pakistan actually, you know, is is not a stranger to domestic terrorism or even to transnational terrorism for that matter. And so after um, the global war on terrorism began, um, Pakistan, there was a lot of unrest within within the country and and um, a lot of the tribal areas, um, there was a lot of unrest in there, too, except for several reasons, um, primarily because most of the Taliban that had escaped Afghanistan due to the U.S. invasion ended up 
and, and they ended up um, in the tribal areas of, of Pakistan, which is a northwest region and it borders Afghanistan. So in order to counter some of the violence that was going on, the Pakistani military establishment um, launched a domestic counterinsurgency campaign in 2009, 2010, 2011, etc. And um, it's there's one that is still ongoing. And it has been primarily responsible for killing numerous militants or those that the state, the Pakistani state, has labeled as militant. But more than that, I want to just sort of talk about just militant sponsorship in Pakistan and, and what it means. So generally in Washington, D.C., the U.S. administrations have always accused Pakistan of sponsoring militant groups, and they are not wrong. There is now enough empirical evidence to indicate that Pakistan indeed has been sponsoring militant groups. But when we say that Pakistan has been sponsoring militant groups, it's not the whole of the country. It's actually the military establishment and intelligence agencies. Now, within Pakistan, the military has sort of evolved into a political and economic organization. Um, and it wants and is in charge of foreign policy in Pakistan and, and of national security interests. Now, when we think about sponsorship, we always link it in the U.S. We always link it to Pakistan's military establishment, which is true. But the Pakistani military establishment has been facilitated by civilian counterterrorism agencies. Now, Pakistan, like many similar, like many countries, um, has you know uh, an equivalent of a Department of Homeland Security, an FBI, etc., that is in charge of law enforcement and domestic surveillance and sort of, you know, domestic security. But all of these agencies, when you look at them collectively, it's clear that they actually facilitate sponsorship. And in my paper, I've analyzed three civil agencies that do so. One is just the legislative branch itself because it's the one that writes the anti-terrorism laws. And Pakistan's anti-terrorism legal regime is very vast. It has 17 laws. Some of them are colonial laws that have been translated into terrorism. Some are new laws um, that address um, how terrorism charges should be dealt with. Then I look at the judiciary, specifically the anti-terrorism courts, which are special courts that operate separate from the criminal justice system. And then I look at the police, especially the counterterrorism departments and counterterrorism forces, which are special forces that deal with domestic terrorism. So all of these combined, basically, the laws have consistently given the executive branch more power in the realm of terrorism. The judiciary has systematically justified this executive overreach by saying that it's constitutional. And the police has wanted to be more like the military in terms of operations, in terms of capacity and capability. So when all when all of these three institutions are analyzed closely, one realizes that it's not just the military establishment that's been sponsoring or helping in sponsoring militant groups, but the civilian institutions have been complicit as well. So it seems that the United States can't expect a lot out of the uh, official channels in Pakistan and the uh, you know the arms of the government with respect to trying to help with U.S. aims. But what can the U.S. government, the Trump administration, the State Department, uh, and the U.S. military uh, do to, I guess, adjust their expectations toward uh, what we can reasonably expect from Pakistan as we try desperately to conclude the war in Afghanistan? Well, you know, I think when it comes to, first of all, there are a couple of things going on. First is what, um, you know, how can uh, the United States 
um, use Pakistan or potentially ask Pakistan for help to meet its own interests. First of all, I don't think the United States has a coherent strategy when it comes to South Asia, especially when it comes to Afghanistan. Now, of course, here at Cato, we would like to see um, a withdrawal plan in, in place. And for years, um, Cato scholars had been advocating for U.S. troops to leave Afghanistan. But within Washington, there are two camps of people. The, the most dominating camp are of those who say that U.S. troops should remain in Afghanistan till Afghanistan becomes a stable government. Um, now, a stable government in Afghanistan means two different things. Um, it means something different for Pakistan, and it means something different from the United States. And I don't think that they're always aligned in it. And then also within the United States, we see that there is a group emerging which advocates for U.S. troops to withdraw. But they say, well, the U.S. troops should not remain as in a general capacity, but they should remain in Afghanistan to train the Afghan National Security Forces. Again, the problem becomes, well, how long will they remain there? And when do we know that training of Afghan national security forces is, is complete? So, you know, within the U.S., there's a lot of incoherence and a lot of inconsistency when it comes to U.S. policy in Afghanistan. Now, this inconsistency with regards to Afghanistan bleeds into the United States relationship with Pakistan. Now, in terms of Pakistan... Pakistan has always wanted a friendly government in Afghanistan. It already has a neighbor to its east, India, that it, I think, <laughs> in simple terms, it, you know, they do not get along. Um, and Pakistan has perpetually feared that India wants to take over um, Pakistan. So on its west, it wants a friendly neighbor. And, you know, Pakistan, since the Soviet withdrawal in 1989, has betted on on the Mujahideen that some elements became the Taliban and, and the Taliban ruled from 1996 to 2000, 2001, as you know. So Pakistan is always sort of betted um, on the Taliban. And Pakistan's argument is, well, at some point, regardless of the stability of the Afghani government, whatever that might mean, um, the U.S. said one day will leave Afghanistan. And when they leave, we need to make sure that whoever is left in Afghanistan is somebody that is pro-Pakistan. And so for Pakistan, they've always viewed that as the Taliban, who might be more pro-Pakistan than, say, any other militant group operating in the country. Sahar Khan is author of Double Game, Why Pakistan Supports Militants and Resists U.S. Pressure to Stop, available at Cato.org. You can subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcasts.